John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and we give you praise, Lord, for calling us together to worship with your bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for his atoning sacrifice and his resurrection from the grave. Lord, as we continue to worship this morning through hearing your word taught and proclaimed, Lord, as we continue to worship through reading your word, through taking of Eucharist, and through singing more songs and prayer, Lord, we pray, God, that you would be honored by our worship, and Lord, that you would pour out your spirit among us, and Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to believe and to hear and to understand, and we ask all of these things in the name of the risen Christ, amen. Well, the Gospel of John is unique from the other three Gospels in quite a few ways. In just a simple reading of all four, you'll pick up on that pretty quickly. But we actually learned a lot about the uniqueness of John's Gospel last year over the course of Craig's Sunday School teaching on John's Gospel. But it's only in John's Gospel that we get the interaction with Nicodemus. It's only in John's Gospel that we have the I Am statements of Jesus. We have only in John's Gospel the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And it's only in this Gospel that we have this very familiar exchange with, bold air quotes here, 
doubting Thomas. But part of John's uniqueness lies in his very intentional thematic approach to the ministry of Christ. And two of these themes stand out very clearly front and center in this text today. And they are the themes of the new creation that's found in Jesus. But also the overarching biblical theme of a theophany. So let me explain both and then we'll dig into this. So there is a creation work happening within this text that the Holy Spirit, through the pen of John, wants us to be very aware of. And this is a work that is continuing even until today. Because we know that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the world itself has been and is being remade and and redeemed. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. He proclaims in Revelation 21.5, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. But at the same time, this text serves simultaneously as a double theophany or a double Christophany. Let me define those two terms for you briefly. A theophany is simply a physical manifestation of God to mankind. So think of the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain or in the baptism of Jesus when the Father speaks and the Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. A Christophany is defined as a physical manifestation of the resurrected Christ, or some also defined it as a physical manifestation of the ascended Christ. So think of Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. So as we approach this very familiar scene with Thomas especially, I want to frame it within these two theophanies, or Christophanies, simply because of how I think this idea of theophany really guides us into a better understanding of this new creation work that has been accomplished by Christ and is still being accomplished by Christ. So, turning our attention then to the first theophany, read with me again verses 19 to 23. Again, we see, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. I want to stop here, actually, because we will read through all of this again in a moment. But these verses, especially this first theophany, verses 19 to 23, are considered by many to be John's account of both the Great Commission and Pentecost at the same time. Now, the reason for this, I think, is from an attempt to place the events of John's gospel into a more comfortable, recognizable, chronological format. John doesn't usually write that way. But we can place some, some chronology on John, right? Because he spends almost more than half of his gospel on the events of Holy Week alone. So we do understand that there is some chronology that we can understand here. But my thinking on this would be that only to approach the events of the Gospel of John only by chronology is to miss really his thematic approach as a whole. So while it's important... Don't miss what he's, what he's saying here. So let's, let's dig a little deeper. So to give us a little bit of chronology, John actually, in the verse that we just read, does give us a time frame of the events. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So if you have your Bibles open, you can back up and see this. In our Bibles, in the previous section, we read about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene as she then mistakes him to be the gardener. And then, backing up even just one more section in this exact same chapter, we see that the particular event with Mary Magdalene takes place on the day of the resurrection itself. So, verses 19 to 23, and I would even argue the first couple of verses regarding Thomas, 
John is telling us that this event right here takes place on the evening of the first resurrection Sunday, right? of the resurrection day. So there's some context, right? But then the third clause of this verse actually adds more information to the context because then he says this. He says that the disciples were hiding behind locked doors, right? They're hiding because they're afraid. John even writes, on the evening of that day being the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now keep their fear in mind as we go through these theophanies because it's important. Because our understanding of theophanies or Christophanies, because in all of Scripture there are three basic elements that really define them. And that's how we'll frame both of these theophanies. And the first element is the element of fear. Fear is a natural, understandable response to someone when they have been immediately exposed suddenly to an appearance of God. Right? It's understandable that they would be absolutely, utterly terrified. Right? Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone, some translations read. When the disciples hear the voice of the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew writes in chapter 17, he says that they fell on their faces terrified. As Paul went on his way, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is a terrifying moment for these disciples. And it is so in multiple ways. So just imagine the scenario, right? If you're trying to picture this in your head, their master had been crucified. Well, they're obviously asking the question, are we next? Are the Jewish leaders now hunting for us? They're hiding. They've locked the door. John doesn't say this, and neither do any of the other Gospels, but in the back of my mind, I'm seeing almost them barricading the door with furniture in the room, right? They've got the locks locked, and they're throwing things against the door to keep people out, right? But then at the same time, they're terrified, they're fearful, they're hiding from the Jewish leaders, but now the crucified Jesus has just showed up and he's alive in this locked room. Of course they're going to be terrified. Right? Their reaction is completely understandable. But even in their fear, we have to ask this question because we have been left with it for the last 2,000 years. Since the door was locked... How did Jesus show up? Right. I imagine some of you might have a better answer than I do. I'm looking around the room. But I'm going to take the easy way out. Right. And I'm going to say this. I don't know. Right? And here's why I don't know. Right? Thank you. Thank you. Right? Here's why I don't know. Because this is a mystery of the glorified body of the resurrected Christ. That's, that's the best answer to this question. Instead of trying to answer where Scripture does not speak, let's see what John does and does not say. Looking again at verse 19, he says this, The door is being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. That's all that he says. He doesn't say that Jesus appeared suddenly like a ghost or like an apparition. Luke does a good job of explaining this part of it. Rather, John simply says that Jesus came and he stood among them. And the point that John is making is something that I think is more profound than our need for a scientific, rational, enlightened explanation. 
Instead, what John is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he wants us to pay attention instead to the bodily resurrected Christ. That's all he cares about. Look at what he says at the rest of this, verse 19 and then into verse 20. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He's not a body. He's not a, he's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He's not a corpse. He has a literal, physical body. He's flesh and blood, as he had always been. Only this time, his flesh and blood have now been resurrected and glorified. That's all that we need to focus on with that. Because I think we try too hard to answer the scientific accuracy of this event in our attempts to make Christianity more understandable or more palatable to the broader culture. Frankly, we've become too uncomfortable with the mystery of God. This is the mystery of God. I appreciate how one commentator writes it. He writes this. He says, Readers of this story are often tempted to ponder what kind of body Jesus could have had that he could appear in a locked room while also being physically present enough to be touched. But, he says, the gospel writers did not and undoubtedly could not clearly explain such a mystery. What the early followers did instead, he says, was witness to what they had saw and what they had touched. John says as much in the beginning of his first letter. He writes in 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Within the disciples' fear of this first theophany, this first appearance of the divine, and even within our own curiosity, Scripture tells us that the physical, bodily resurrected Jesus came and simply stood among the disciples who were in a locked room. But it is absolutely silent on how it occurred, leading us to only one conclusion. Jesus is God. And that's it. Right? So, Fear, that's the first element of a theophany. Let's move on to the second. And we see this in verses 19 and in verse 21. And it is the pronouncement of a calming word or a, a word of comfort. Right. So Jesus just said, he came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And start at the beginning of verse 21. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So this is not an insignificant accidental detail that John is trying to draw our attention to. In every theophany, Throughout all of Scripture, the sudden appearance of God was expected, rightly so, to strike absolute terror. Because when God shows up, it either meant judgment or it meant death. And so what was necessary then, if God is going to show up and people are going to get absolutely terrified, then a calming word of peace, or shalom, was usually accompanied with it. To have God appear... And then to immediately proclaim peace indicated that his appearance then did not bring with it judgment or death. Rather, it brought with it something else. It brought with it a message, or it brought with it, which is the third element, and we're going to move on, the third element of a theophany, which is a commission. So, listen again to verse 21 to 23. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. 
If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, for the sake of biblical continuity, let's just let's do a little biblical reading, right? Let's back all the way up, if you want, to Isaiah chapter 6. Again, this is very familiar, but we see this exact same framework of a theophany happening in the life of Isaiah. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 5, we read, Isaiah says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. There is your proclamation of fear. And then, he says, One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said a calming word. He said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. There's not... Too many calming words, that calming then, your sin has been atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, here's your commission, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. There is your commission. Well, this happens also in the New Testament. Just consider Acts chapter 9. Again, Paul's journey to Damascus. Starting in verse 3, we read, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Here's your commission. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. That's a very simple commission, but sometimes those are the easiest to follow. Get up and go into the city that's in front of you. Right? But then again, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so now I am sending you. Jesus pronounces peace and then gives this commission, but notice the recreation work, the new creation work that's happening within this commission of this first theophany. Just as Yahweh breathed the breath of life into Adam, now Jesus is breathing the spirit of life into those who are his new creation people. And this new creation is given the same creation mandate that Adam and Eve were given. Go, be fruitful, and multiply. Fill the earth, but fill it with the gospel of the resurrected Christ. Just as the Father had sent Jesus to be the means by which forgiveness for sin would be made possible, Jesus now sends the disciples as well as us so that we, as his new creation people, are now his presence on earth to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. And only God, now we understand this, only God has the power to forgive sins, but by this indwelling spirit of God, The believer and the church, we go out and we proclaim that forgiveness of sins comes only through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And even though it is God who does the work, the believer is now a full participant with God in his salvation work because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so in the remarkable moment of this theophany, the Christian and the church are commissioned to be both the recipient of and the minister of the renewing work of God. And for the very first time in redemptive history, the people of God are now full participants within the mission of God because they are indwelled by His Spirit. Well, that's the first theophany. 
Let's build on that then and look at the second one. Starting in verse 24, we read this. Now Thomas, called uh, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. And do not disbelieve, but believe. Let's stop there. We'll read the rest in a moment. So, again, framing this through those three elements of a theophany, we see fear first in verses 24 through 26. Again, John, what he's doing is he's setting the context for us. It's similar to the previous scene that we just saw. Only now, we see that Thomas is there, right? That's good to know, right? He wasn't there before, now he is. But... We also see, though, that Thomas, he's, he's not buying what the other ten are selling. Right? They're, they're saying, we've, we've seen Jesus. Right? We know he was crucified. That's a horrible, torturous way to die. We know we saw his dead body, but he is alive. We've seen him, and he's like, I don't believe it. <laughs> For him, it just doesn't make sense. But we're also left to assume that they are still fearful, as well as Thomas, because, as we see here in verse 26, the doors are still locked. Right? They're still hiding. But notice in Thomas's response to them in verse 25, notice what he's asking. He's asking for exactly that which the others had just been given. If we assume, now we don't know this for sure, but if we assume that verses 24 and 25 take place just later that evening, he finally shows up, Jesus has left, then they have just seen the Lord and they have just seen his body. They have seen him walking and talking and breathing he was not given that proof. He's asking for the exact same proof. He just wants proof. He wants tangible evidence. But notice in his response here, he's not just asking for proof of the resurrection. He wants proof of the crucifixion. Listen to what he says again. Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe he wants tangible evidence that the Jesus that he knew, the Jesus that had died on the cross, the man that he ate with, the man that he walked with, the man that he was chosen by, and the man that had taught him as his rabbi, Thomas demands tangible proof that this is also the same Jesus that the other ten are now telling him has been raised from the dead. And so Thomas, throughout all of John's Gospel, has often been criticized for his expression of doubt. Even, even some of the fathers give him a hard time for this. But throughout all of John's gospel, Thomas was always the one who was the realist. In chapter 11, Jesus is preparing to go south, and Thomas just says, let's go with him so that we can die with him. And so he is presented always as the realist, the one who looked at a situation and evaluated it on the basis of what he could understand and perceive. He wanted tangible evidence. And so now he only demands that which the others have been allowed to experience themselves. And his response simply mirrors their claims. They say, we have seen the Lord. And you see there in verse 20, he showed them his hands and his side. And so he says, I want to see them, and I want to touch them. And until I can do both, I will not believe. He demands the same proof. But once again, 
Also, Jesus then appears in this locked room, and it's once again a sudden appearance of the divine. And so Jesus immediately then issues this calming word of peace. One more time, verse 26, he says, Peace be with you. He came and he stood among them. The exact same phrase from verse 19. He came, he stood among them, peace be with you. But this time, as we consider this calming word, I want to note three words at the beginning of verse 26 that really points us to the new creation work happening in this second theophany. In verse 26, John begins this verse with these three words. He says, eight days later. There's not too many eight days that we really hear about, right, in Scripture, right? John is doing something very intentional and very theological here. And it helps to know exactly what he's doing, so I'm going to tell you. He's pointing us intentionally, not just to the fact that Jesus shows up in a locked room that he is divine, but this eight days later points to his divinity. And here's how. Just as God himself rested on the seventh day of his work of creation, Jesus rested from his work of the new creation in the tomb on the seventh day, but then was raised on the eighth day. And he signals the dawning of a new creation by his resurrection. Calvin writes this. He says, Let it suffice for us to say and maintain that what is certain and solid, namely, that God in this symbol of the eighth day has so represented to us the destruction of the old man and to show us that he restores all men to life. Within this calming word of peace, pronounced by the risen Christ on the eighth day, Jesus signals to us the reality of the new creation that is found only in him. And this now leads us to the third element of a theophany, which is the commission. So again, they're in a locked room. Jesus speaks peace. And as in the previous theophany, he has not shown up in judgment. Rather, he offers a very clear commission directly to Thomas. He says... Touch me. Touch my flesh. Touch the wounds. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There is a beautiful painting, and I'm looking at you, Walton, by Caravaggio, I believe I'm saying that appropriately, of this scene, of this particular scene that I know for a fact is hanging in the Padelford's home. Unless you've moved it since the last time I was there, right? So Caravaggio took a very, very, very vivid approach. Google this. It's, it's a wonderful image. Or go to the Padelford's house you know, if, they, if they ask you to come over. So, but he took a very vivid approach to the, to the Greek word that John uses here and that Jesus commands here when he tells him to put your finger and put out your hand. This word means to actually almost violently reach out in Greek, right? And in the painting, what Caravaggio does is he actually has Jesus taking... Thomas's hand and putting his finger into the spear wound on his side. Like Jesus himself is guiding Thomas's hand just to prove to Thomas that he is once again flesh and blood and alive. Right? And Thomas in the in the painting is just he has this his eyes are huge and he has this look of stunned shock on his face, right? So not only does he see Jesus, but then he grasps his hand and touches the the wounds and he's shocked. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Touch me and believe. 
And Thomas believes, and he believes boldly, and he proclaims simply, my Lord and my God. Doubting Thomas, quote-unquote, becomes the proclaimer more so than the other ten in their same moment. He says, you are my Lord, my Master, but you are my God. And Jesus responds in verse 29, and he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus offers Thomas something that I think any one of us in the room would gladly accept. Tangible proof by being able to touch his body. We give Thomas an unnecessarily hard time by giving him the nickname Doubting Thomas. We're too hard on Thomas, simply because he did not believe the other disciples. But Thomas's doubt, God had John record this for a reason. Thomas's doubt is a blessing for us. Because it's almost like God knows us pretty well. Like, you know, he made us or something, right? And he knew that humanity would have a hard time believing that a man crucified would rise from the dead. And so Thomas, in just a few verses, needing physical proof, is allowed to touch the scars and allowed to touch the uncorrupted flesh of Christ, like we heard about again from Psalm 16. And God recorded this for us because of Jesus' comment in this verse, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In a very real way, we experience a little theophany every time we gather as the gathered bride of Christ in the church. Because Christ is present within each believer in this room by his indwelling Holy Spirit. And so, thinking through those three elements of a theophany, let's, let's do a little application briefly. Listen to what John closes with our text with here. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, you reader may believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have never had the privilege of seeing Christ physically, at least in the flesh. None of us are given the same luxury as Thomas is given. And that really induces a lot of fear sometimes, I would imagine. We, 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 we deal with doubt sometimes. Most of us have a stronger grasp on faith than others. Because it's been 2,000 years since Jesus has ascended back to the Father. Of course there's going to be moments when we're afraid. God, what am I doing? Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. Because I'm willing to bet each believer in this room, at least at some moment in their faith life, would like this tangible evidence that Thomas has given. Jesus, just let me touch your flesh. Let me touch your side. Let me touch the places where the thorns tore into your head and where your feet were pierced, crushing the head of the serpent. But in that fear, Jesus, through this passage, proclaims to us a calming word of comfort and encouragement. Because although we may not have the luxury that Thomas and the other ten did, Jesus does proclaim that we are even more blessed than those who received the physical proof. Because we believe on account of the word of their testimony. John tells us, and these things have been written, their testimonies have been written, 
the account of Thomas's doubt has been written so that we can receive this calming word from Christ and believe that he was indeed physically and bodily raised from the dead and that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. And as a word of commission, because the Holy Spirit has been breathed out, these things are written so that we will believe and so that the resurrection of Christ and life in Christ would be proclaimed. Our commission is the same as the disciples in verse 23. Go, multiply, and fill the earth, and fill it with the forgiveness of sins through the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit and by the believer and the church going out and proclaiming the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Christ, the dead heart of the unbeliever is made alive and brought to saving faith. In Christ, the believer and the church are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are commissioned to be both the recipient and the minister of the salvation work of God. And if we fail to be obedient to his commission, we are withholding the forgiveness of sins to a world that needs it just as desperately as each of us do. And so as the Father sent Christ, we now are also sent. And these things are written so that you may believe, so that I may believe, so that our friends and our neighbors and our families might believe that Jesus is the Redeemer, the Deliverer, and as John says, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we may all have life in His name and in His name alone. Thanks be to God.